Open your Bible to Psalm 24, um, verses 1 to 10. And let's read. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, you are the king of glory. You're the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, Yahweh, the creator, king, God, Lord, all things you are to us, Lord, are amazing and incredible. And Lord, you've made a way for us to enter into your presence because of who you are, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you for these things. Thank you, Lord, that that we can come before you and that you hear us and that you care about every thought that we have, every intention of our heart. So God, would you please speak to us today? Holy Spirit, would you anoint my lips, my heart, my, my mind, every part of who I am to preach the word that you proclaim today to your people for your honor, glory, and power are forever and ever. Amen. So for the last 25 years, before I was called to Reality Carpinteria, I, was, I worked vocationally as a set designer in the entertainment industry. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, well, we don't care about that, but I'm here, so there you go. Um, and it's a miracle, it really is, because I never thought that God would call me to a position like this. Although I was a pastor, I was a vocational lay pastor um, for probably the last 20 years, um, being on staff here has been one of the greatest privileges of my life, and I'm just super thankful for that. But during that time that I worked as a, as a set designer, I worked on hundreds of projects, literally, but a few stood out like this one project. In 2010, I was commissioned to work on a new series chronicling the heroics of a platoon of soldiers during World War II called The Pacific. I was excited by the prospect of working with two of the greatest Hollywood film icons of all time and the producers of the project, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. These men are not only accomplished, but they're experts in their craft. You know, many of us can look at people like that and idolize them because of, of what they've done, but really, we can also honor people who are good at what they do and that love their craft and want it to be excellent. The anticipation of everyone on this day was just electric. Like, the room was just, it, you, you could feel, it's kind of like, have you ever been to a Dodger playoff game? 
where everyone's like waving the flags and like it, it didn't have quite that. Yeah, I can't, sorry, Dodger fans, but it, it was pretty electric. It was really cool. And we hastily built our little set. It was just not a big deal. Um, and we waited for the day to begin. Shortly after, Stephen and Tom entered the room. And when they entered, immediately there was silence. Like you could just, there was a, a reverence to their presence just because of who they were. So everyone in the room just went quiet. Um, and we all went about our business, you know, because we still had things to do or trying to accomplish our tasks. But as we did those things, as if the presence of Mr. Spielberg and Mr. Hanks wasn't enough, war hero Eugene Sledge entered into the room. And everyone in the room was in awe. The atmosphere shifted as Eugene's presence swayed the room towards him. There was a separation of these great men. So all of a sudden, there's Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, but you're like, wait, this is Eugene Sledge. This is the guy the story's about. So it was as if we just forgot that Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks were even there. The surprise was the fact that there's always someone greater than even the greatest of men around us. Eugene Sledge, as I said, was the man behind the story of the Pacific, who was given the prestigious Medal of Honor for his heroics during the war. There's only been given 3,000 Medals of Honor in the history of the United States, and he was one of these men. We were all part of telling stories about our art, but Eugene actually was the story. The power of Eugene's presence was so tangible and real in that moment. His presence somehow made you want to know him better, made you want to be closer to him, understanding that this moment was fleeting and that it was going to pass soon. We drew lots of just, I don't know, it was just, it's, it's hard to explain because when you're around someone that has sacrificed their life for your country, it's just a different thing. It's a different thing than celebrity. It's a different thing than politicians. It's, it's just different. He drew us into his story, and he somehow made us recognize the power of his presence that was presiding around us was special. And it was as if you wanted to take a part of this with you. If some of us have experienced separation between ourselves and celebrities, world leaders, and political figures, how much more is there separation between us and God's presence? If this is true, how do we experience God's presence? How do we experience the presence of God? You know, it was cool being around these celebrities. It was cool being with Eugene, but the presence of God? How do you even tangibly understand what that is? David knew God's greatness. David knew God is the greatest of all beings. He lived in the mystery of God's power, and he wanted to experience the presence of God. David longed to experience God's presence in every part of his life. He was drawn to God's goodness and grace, and he reveled in his glory and wonder. 
David marveled upon the wonder of God in his presence over everything. And the beginning of the psalm starts out by proclaiming how good God is, that he owns everything. Everything is his. There's nothing that we see that God doesn't possess. The funny thing is, we think that we can have ownership of some of these things, don't we? We think if I had this, if I had that, it would be so great. But at the end of the day, it's all God's. It all comes from him and it all goes back to him. David proclaims in the Psalm that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That includes you and I. It's not just the earth. It's not just his creation. We're part of his creation. So all things is what this Psalm encompasses. This is who God is and God's majestic glory is revealed in his presence, through his presence and around his presence. He's the only one and true God, and his majesty is eternal in the heavens. He's timeless and all-powerful. He's the creator of heaven and earth. The galaxies bow down to his presence. He's the only one that holds all things together. Think about the chair you're sitting on. We look at that chair and we say, oh, it's a chair. I can sit on it. I trust that this chair is going to hold me when I sit on it. But really, all that chair is, is atoms and molecules floating around, spinning around, and God is holding that all together. He's our Lord and King. Everything is his, and we are his. This text tells us that God has perfect authority over all these things, but he starts by telling us about the rivers and the seas and how God creates order out of chaos. You guys have been, well, some of you have been in a storm before on the ocean, And when you're on a storm on the ocean, you really understand the power of God. And you understand that the power of the seas and the rivers and all these things are held together by him. But the beautiful thing about this is, is God creates order out of chaos. In Genesis 1, God says that he separated the expanse. He he made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse. Then David says that he's founded the earth upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So he's referencing this grandeur of who God is in that part of creation. When we look around us and we see all this greatness, beauty, and power, we marvel at the presence of God and the power of God all around us. Some time ago, my wife and I took a trip to Alaska um, we, there was a pastor that we knew he was doing a cruise and we decided to do a cruise. We're not like really cruise people. I call cruises floating buffets. It's kind of what they are. You just eat way too much, you know, and you end up gaining 10 pounds, but you experience something. Um, but we, we were super excited to have the, this experience to be able to, um, just see the beauty of Alaska, to see like the untouched land that, that is all around there. And neither of us have ever experienced anything like that before. I mean, I've, I've traveled a lot, but I've never been to places that just seem so pristine, so beautiful, just untouched. Um, and this untouched wilderness of this rugged country just grabbed your heart. It just grabbed your heart when you looked around. It was amazing in the sense that we're, one day, we're, we're on this like little inflatable raft. We're floating down the river, and three bald eagles like just come circling around us. And one of them's just a baby, and we're just like, wow. 
how amazing. I'd never seen a bald eagle before. Like, it was just so incredible. But what happened after that when, when we first landed was we decided when we went to Juneau, we're going to charter a helicopter, and we just want to see it from the sky, like see all these things. So we went, got in the helicopter. This guy took us up. We get up there, and we're just looking at everything, and it's just so grand and majestic. And he takes us down into like a ravine, and the ravine follows this riverbed. And the riverbed's winding around. It's really beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool, whatever, you know. But this pilot, he knew what he was doing. This wasn't his first rodeo. And so he took us up slowly up the side of the cliff till we got to the precipice to the top. And then when we got to the top, everything just opened up. Like there were glaciers everywhere. It was just incredible. And he landed down on uh, one of the glaciers and, you know, we're just walking around the frozen tundra and we just realized, wow, this is so incredible. So, you know, we experienced that and we got back on the ship and we're just, you know, doing our thing. And what was beautiful about this trip was it wasn't just a trip just to experience Alaska. We were doing studies actually in Exodus with this pastor. And it was so cool because he was talking about, you know, entering in to God's presence, entering into the promised land. And when he uh, started preaching that, that night, he said, uh, what did you see today? What captivated you today? What was it that grabbed your heart today? And then he said, wouldn't you want to own a piece of this? Wouldn't it be great? But the issue is that we really never own anything. So all we saw that was before us, everything that was before us, we recognized that it could never be purchased by us and it was God's. Every bound, every sea, every prairie, every tree, it was all his. And then he said something that was really interesting. He said, if you owned all these things, have you ever thought about what would happen? Well, what would happen is, first of all, since it's Alaska and you don't live there, you'd have to go there all the time. So you'd have this burden of trying to go there all the time. Then you'd get there, or you, maybe you'd rent it out, or whatever you'd do at the property. And you'd realize that the plumbing broke, the air conditioning went out, the roof was leaking. And you would really understand that even though you're trying to reach for this beauty through owning something, it's really understanding and experiencing the beauty of God without our hearts trying to yearn for ownership that he speaks to us in. We don't have to own these things. I mean, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Don't you, don't you agree? Carpinteria is amazing. And just, just being around here, like the, it was funny, when I first moved here, this is like, I don't know, this is just a confession. I, I thought I, I was like I was on vacation because we would come to Carpentry all the time and we would go to the park and, you know, camp out over here. But just walking around, I was just in, inspired every day by just God's beauty that I don't have to own that, that he owns all these things. So when we see the greatness of God and his beauty revealed in all creation, we know and understand how small we are, how insignificant we are, and we ask, How are we to approach such a God as this? That's what David's getting at in this psalm. He starts off by proclaiming how great God is, how he owns everything, how beautiful his creation is. And then he asks us, how are we to approach such a God as this? Who can stand in God's holy place? Who can enter God's presence? 
In verses three and four, David gives us the requirements for us to enter God's presence. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Well, he answers that, and he gives us five different ways that you can enter into God's presence. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart can enter his presence. Clean hands describe our actions before God as a righteous display of love for God and others. A pure heart proclaims the motives for our actions. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He wants to know our motives and our intentions. He cares about not only what we do, but the reason that we do it. In Luke 6.45, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we know that a lot of times our motives are not right. So we're challenged with that. The second thing he says, or actually it's the third, is only those who do not lift their soul to another can enter God's presence. Only those who do not lift up their soul to something false can enter God's presence. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And since the fall, we've struggled with that because we want to own things. We want to have things. We look to other things other than God to give us our salvation. And this is a hard pill to swallow, but all of us in some way, shape, or form do this. Idolatry is trusting in things other than God to satisfy or save us, actually lifting up our soul to something or someone who is false. The next thing David talks about is only those who do not swear deceitfully can enter into God's presence. There's another hard one. Anyone ever driven on the freeway? (laughs) That's when those, those things happen. Swearing deceitfully actually is the act of deliberate deception towards another. It's actually a lack of integrity. The truth is we all lack the ability to enter into God's presence. And that's a hard pill to swallow too. David recognized his inability to enter into God's presence. David recognized his separation from God. David realized he did not have clean hands or a pure heart. You know, David wanted to build the temple, but God told him, you're a man of blood you can't build the temple. He didn't have clean hands or a pure heart. He desired it. I believe David desired that. I believe David wanted to enter into the presence of the Lord. That the reason that he wanted to build the temple was he wanted to be the one that, entered, that allowed God to enter into that holy place where, where the Lord's presence would be amongst all his people. So what are we to do? What do we do with this dilemma? How can we just process this, that we don't have clean hands and pure heart? Our motives aren't pure. We swear falsely. We do all these things. Well, tradition tells us that this psalm was written as a song of a sense. It was a special song of sense. And the reason why it was written by David was, most people believe traditionally, that these, this was the song that they were singing as they brought the ark, of the, ta- of the ark of God into the tabernacle on the holy hill of God in Jerusalem. So it's been said, 
that this was a call and response type of psalm, that the people would say something and then it would be answered. And then the priest would say something, it would be answered. But this didn't take place with any, without any obstacles, trying to bring the ark up to the tabernacle again. When moving the ark, there came a time when they traveled over a, flesh, a, tr- a threshing floor, not a fleshing floor, a threshing floor. And there was a man named Uzzah there. And he and his brother were in the front of the ark and the back of the ark. And David had built a new cart to put the ark on, thinking, well, you know, I I built this new thing to carry the ark because we know it's holy and we know God's presence is there. But when they went over this threshing floor, the cart tipped. And Uzzah, that was behind the cart, reached out to grab the cart so he could stop it from falling. And God struck him dead. God struck him dead. David was angry. He was so angry because he's like, God, how could you do this? How could you kill this man who was just trying to stop the ark from falling over? And then we're told that David became afraid of the Lord because he thought, wow, I'm no better than Uzzah. What could happen to me? Uzzah's experience wasn't really unique to him alone either. You know, God is holy, and his holiness cannot be violated. And when Uzzah reached out with unclean hands to touch the ark of God, God was saying to him, you do not approach me apart from holiness. You cannot approach me apart from holiness. With Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, a similar thing happened. They decided that they were going to go into the tabernacle and they were going to burn incense unto the Lord, except for they weren't supposed to do that. And what happened to Nadab and Abihu? God struck them dead. He takes his holiness seriously, as we should, because he is a holy God and he is reverent in all things. The problem with these two is they wanted to approach God on their own terms. And we oftentimes do that ourselves. We oftentimes get in a place where we want to approach God on our own terms. And you cannot approach God except for on his terms. God makes the rules, not us. And because his holiness is so far above us, Isaiah gives us this vision in Isaiah 6 to show us that grandeur once again when he says, in the year of King Uzziah, when he died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God had given him this vision of this grandeur and greatness. And realizing such greatness, who will ever enter into the presence of the Lord? That's what David's asking. Okay, I want to bring the ark in. God, you told me to do this. But you killed Uzzah, and I'm a man of unclean hands. What are we going to do? David, through firsthand experience, knew his inability to approach God. He understood the great need for clean hands and a pure heart, the need to be holy before Yahweh. In this passage, another thing to really understand and take to heart is that the word Lord is all capitalized. 
And when any time in the Bible where the word Lord is all capitalized, it speaks of Yahweh, the great I am. The name that those who practice Judaism will not even say. They put G slash D. They won't even say the word. So we know that we have no ability in and of ourselves to approach God. The truth is none of us are holy and no one can approach God apart from his holiness. If David couldn't enter God's holiness and even Moses had to hide when he was exposed to God's holiness, who has entered into God's presence? God knows that we can't enter into his presence, but listen to how David concludes this psalm. By the way, in each part of this psalm, there's three different things that God expresses. First, he tells us of his glory and ownership. Then he tells us that the way to enter into his holiness. And after the second part stanza, he says, Selah. And Selah is basically, let's just take a break. Let's just be silent before the Lord. And he says, Selah. And then he says, he gives us this, this whole passage on how something radically changes in the way that he sees God. Because when David understood that he could not approach God except for by his holiness, and then he knew that the only way to that was through God, then David prostrated himself and prayed that God would give him the way to bring the ark into the tabernacle. You see, it wasn't just the ark ascending the holy hill of God, but it's the Lord that ascended the holy hill of God. The king of glory who enters through the gate. He has come to us. This is unique because every other religion in the world affirms that we need to earn our way into God's presence. But the Bible has always been about the need for God to come to us, to bridge the gap that we could never bridge. Since we can't approach God, he comes down to us. He comes down to us. The hill of the Lord is God's presence among us. It's never a building that brings God's presence in. Remember that this building that we're in right now is only holy because God is here. The Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us, all of us together, brings the presence of God into this building. Any building is nothing but a mere shell apart from the presence of God. It was God's entrance into the tabernacle that sanctified it, that made it holy, that brought his presence into it. In this same way, Jesus has made a way to enter into humanity by bringing the presence of God to us. He did it the way that no one could ever imagine. He became a baby. He was born of a virgin. He became one of us. He actually lived the way we live. God could have just came down as an adult. He could have done anything he wanted, but he allowed Jesus to experience every part of life. You know, in Hebrews, it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but we have a high priest who is tempted in every way, yet without sin. He identifies with everything that you go through, everything that I go through. Sometimes we, we think, God, do you really understand? Do you understand what I'm going through? 
because we can go through some hard times, but he has experienced everything and more than we will ever experience. And he brought his presence to us through humanity. Jesus brought God's presence as a human. He became one of us. As a son, in obedience to the Father in all things. As a friend. The Bible says that we are a friend of God's. As a discipler, he discipled the 12 men who discipled the the modern world of that day. As our sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. The man who was sinless, who gave the sacrifice, the, the only thing that was required to stop God's vengeance upon us. And that's a hard thing too, is that God will bring justice and his justice will come through vengeance, but he wants his, his justice to come through forgiveness. And that's what he, Jesus offers us. And lastly, as our savior, Jesus brought God's presence as our savior. Jesus continues to reveal his presence through the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells all of, in, in all of us that believe in his name. That is an incredible thing because now we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think about your body as a temple? So they were trying to reach the tabernacle with the ark, but the ark lives within us now. God's presence is within us through the Holy Spirit. So when David prepared the ark, to enter the holy hill of God the second time, he changed the way he did it. Every six steps he took, he sacrificed. No longer would David approach God apart from reverence and sacrifice, but David now danced before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? He danced before the Lord because he knew God was gonna enter into his presence. He knew God was gonna do what he said he would do. He understood that he couldn't approach God apart from his holiness. The psalmist here declares, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. That the king of glory may come in. This phrasing is so beautiful to take inanimate objects as if they're humans. Lift up your heads, gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors. When Jesus, the king of glory, enters in, the gates must be lifted up. They cannot withhold his power, his glory, his honor, his majesty. The doors cannot stay closed. Yahweh is entering in. Yahweh, strong and mighty, it says. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, Yahweh, mighty in battle. No doors or, no doors or gates can hold back this king. The Israelites looked forward to the day when the ark would return to Jerusalem, when the glory of God would once again fill the tabernacle. God was ascending once more upon his holy hill. When Jesus came as a man and died in our place, he did what we could never do. He ascended the holy hill of God. Not just in Jerusalem, he ascended to heaven. He sits Next to the Father, he's at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, because he has ascended. But this came as a great cost. He gave everything. He died for our sins. He took the place of you and I. He was buried in an empty tomb. 
And then when everything seemed lost, Jesus rose and the tomb was empty. Can I get an amen on that? The tomb was empty. He's alive. Jesus is alive. His ascension was eternal through the ages. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will bring all those who call upon his name with him by uniting us to himself. He's fulfilled the requirements of holiness through his perfect life and sacrifice, and he's done this himself. Jesus made the way to approach the presence of God so that we can approach the presence of God. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We can, as the author of Hebrews says, boldly enter in, as I said earlier, boldly enter into the Holy of Holies. We can now call the maker of the universe, the creator of all things, Abba, Father. Think about that. In all this grandeur, splendor, splendor and holiness, we can call him Father? How wonderful is that? How intimate. We can approach the presence of God because Jesus has broken the bonds of sin and sanctified us by his precious blood. He's the only one that can give us clean hands and a pure heart. He's the only one who forgives our idolatry. He remembers not the deceitfulness of our hearts for humanity because he's wiped away every sin by his blood. No longer do we have to sacrifice oxen and calves every six steps as David had to as he approached God's presence. We now have the privilege to, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. So we worship God today for his availability. He is available to you and I today. No longer do we have to sit here and say, God is so holy and I am so wretched. What am I to do? Jesus made the way. We can boldly enter in. He's waiting for those of you that don't know him. He's waiting for you. He's calling on you. For those of you that do know him, those of you that are struggling with the deceitfulness of sin, with the wretchedness of who you are, those of you that Satan is telling you you're not worthy, you don't have the ability to do this, Jesus has made the way. He's made the way and he's available for us today. So we worship him. So let us worship and bow down to the Lord, our God, our maker. Let us seek him like hidden treasure. Let us worship and adore his beauty. Then, as the psalmist says, we will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. For such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you've made a way, Lord. And honestly, God, the heaviness of your holiness and us being able to approach you can be overwhelming. But Jesus, you blew the gates open. The doors are wide and available for us to enter into your presence. And your presence is good. There's nothing better than to be in the presence of the living God. So Lord, we just ask that you would enter in boldly into our hearts, God. That the things that so easily beset us, we would cast them aside, lay them aside, knowing that you want to enter in, that you desire to have fellowship with us. 
You desire to be there with us. You desire for your presence to be among your people. Be with us right now, God, as we look to you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.